I suppose you could. I haven't had anybody, I haven't had any demands yet, you know. But uh, I'd be glad, I'd be glad to, I'd be glad to burn you a copy uh, that you could have. Yeah. So just let me know what ones you'd like, and I can do that. Okay. okay. All right. We are, uh, we are in Genesis chapter six, and the last couple weeks we labored through the first. Uh, Eight verses or so, which, uh, as we uh, discovered as we were going through it, is a very difficult passage with uh, a number of difficult issues, and we satisfactorily resolved every one of them, right? <laughs> so, uh, you weren't here last week. We, we reached the grand conclusion, and we all just sighed and went amen, and it was all over. Uh, well, I I was baiting you. I was <laughs> so, yeah, I had to look good for the family. So yeah, I wouldn't let them ask me any questions. So, but uh, anyway, uh, so uh, we'll pick it up uh, where we left off, which was at verse eight, and and we'll uh, hopefully try to cover the rest of the chapter today, verses nine through. 22. It's not quite as difficult uh, of a passage as the first few verses, but uh, but let's just read the chapter and then uh, and then take a, a few moments to kind of review some of the things we've talked about over the last couple of weeks and then go on from there. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms. You shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the floor of the ark, uh, excuse me, set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. 
Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing on the, of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible to gather it to yourself and it shall be uh, for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that commanded him, so he did. Okay? Well, uh, briefly, for those of you here last week, what do you remember that's impressed you or stuck out to you that we talked about last week? And you're all supposed to go, I got all my questions answered. (laughs) You're laughing. Okay, okay, okay. So this idea of these great mighty men of old, what point does does uh, Moses go to uh, here uh, to stress about these characters? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were apparently quite large individuals. Yeah, we don't know exactly how big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't have been the descendants of these Nephilim because these Nephilim perished in the flood. So, yeah, it could have been of the other ones that they ran into in Canaan for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and what Moses is the point that Moses is making there is in the minds of the children of Israel as they're out there in the wilderness is he's refuting this pagan concept that these great tyrants that lived in ancient times were semi gods or descendants of, of marriages between the gods and, and, and mankind, okay? Which was of course a pagan myth, a pagan idea. And and he's refuting that that concept or that idea and, and establishing that as great and as powerful and as tyrannical and as violent as these guys were, they were simply men. They were not semi-gods, okay? What else? Okay. 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 And what did I mean by that? Do you have any idea? <laughs> Had everybody talking about me on the way home. My ears were burning. <laughs> Okay. 
Okay. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's one of the things we stress. When we talk about the immutability of God, we're talking about His character, His purposes, His nature, His promises. Those things do not change. And we have to remember that, of course, we're speaking, whenever we speak of God in, in terms of time, we're speaking anthropomorphically because God is outside of time. And we talked about that last week. Uh, but the, but the, the concept that is clearly presented in Scripture is that although God and His character and His purposes, His nature and His promises, He does not change, yet it is clear that God responds to man. And God responds to how man responds to Him. Okay? And, and, uh, and so speaking anthropomorphically, we might say that God's intentions change conditioned upon man's response to Him or, or man's... Uh, uh, conditioned on man's behavior. Okay, and so what what has happened here is that God has created the heavens and the earth. He's created this very beautiful thing, uh, but but now because of what man has done, because of man's sin, uh, it says uh, in this passage that God is sorry. And we talked about that particular word, how that is sometimes translated repents. The idea is that God was was sorry, or he was. The idea or the thought of creation brought sorrow and brought grief to the heart of God because of what man had done. And it's, an, and it's essential that we understand that about God, that God is a person. And if God is a person, he has emotions. Okay? And, and we talk about the personhood of God, and that's one of the, one of the uh, cardinal Christian concepts of God, is that God is a person, or three persons in one. Uh, and, uh, and so, personhood involves... Emotion, And so all the way through Scripture, we see this idea of God's emotions. We see His joy, we see His anger, we see His pleasure, we see His sadness. We see those things all the way through Scripture. And so, while we understand that God is immutable and unchanging, we still have to understand that, that God is impacted in some sense or in some way by our conduct and our behavior. And that's the idea that is being communicated there in, in, uh, in, in this passage. The idea that our sin has impacted God and caused sorrow in his heart. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's the funny thing about Jonah, if we can use the term there, use the word there, is that Jonah knows he doesn't have to tell him to repent. All he has to do is tell him God's going to judge him. But he still doesn't want to go. Because <laughs> he's afraid if they hear they're going to be judged, they're going to repent, even though that's not included in the message. And, uh, and that is a classic example of God's intentions uh, apparently changing, again speaking anthropomorphically, that God's intentions apparently changing conditioned upon man's response to him. Yes, sir? Yeah. 
Did they have screwdrivers back then? <laughs> they didn't have a DeWalt drill. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, it really is pretty awesome. Well, let's go on into the story then. As we talked about last week, verses, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6 are the transition from the second Taladot to the third Taladot. Okay? So the first Taladot was the account of the, gener- uh, the the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth it begins in chapter two verse four. The second Taladot begins in chapter five verse one. It's the account of the generations of Adam. And now we're going to pick up the third Taladot, which is begins in verse nine, which is the records of the generations of Noah. Okay, so this would be the third major division after the prologue that we're entering into. And the last eight verses that we just looked at are the transition from the second Taladot into the third Taladot. Okay. Now, this Taladot is a little bit different than the others. You'll remember uh, when, we, when I introduced this concept of Taladots, these ten Taladots that we have as we go through the book of Genesis, that they are typically named after an individual. So, for example, you have the Taladot of Adam or the generations, the account of the generations of Adam that begins there in chapter 2. And, but as you, as you read the Taladot, as you study it, you discover it's really not about Adam. It's about Adam's descendants. Okay? And as we go through the other Taladots, pretty much as you study them, you'll see, uh, as we talked about before, that the Taladot is really not about the person after whom it's named. It is, it is, it is about the descendants of the person after whom it is named. Okay? This one is an exception. Uh, this particular Taladot, about the, the Taladot of, of uh, Noah here, beginning in verse 9, is really about Noah, and it's about the flood. Yes, sir? Uh, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. <laughs> I had to think about it. Uh, T-O-L-E-D-O-T. And some people put an H on the end. So some people pronounce it Taladoth. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. And it's simply the it's the Hebrew word that's translated the accounts or the generations in these verses. Okay. Uh, so, so at any rate, uh, this one's a little bit different in that this one really is about Noah. This Taladot of Noah, or this account of Noah, really is about Noah. It's not about his sons. Okay. And and so that the thing that that's important about that is it points out to us the significance of the flood account. Okay. That, that the writer of, of, of Genesis here, that Moses de, de, uh, devotes uh, an entire Taladot simply to the account of the flood uh, that will go through up into chapter 9. Okay? And, uh, and so this whole account is very important. And it's, it's important to the whole structure of Genesis. It's important to the story of redemption. And so, of course, we'll take some time as we consider it. Now, as he introduces this uh, Taladot, he uh, in in chapter nine, uh, chapter six, verse nine, he says, "These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God." And so he describes 
to us this man Noah. Now, we really haven't known much about Noah up to this point. We know from chapter 5 that his name means comfort, and we talked a little bit about that last week and the significance of his name comfort and that he actually, uh, by, by the use of that uh, play on words that's in the Hebrew there in, chapter, uh, in, or in verse 6, we discover that, that one of the things that's significant about Noah is not only does he bring comfort to man, but he also brings comfort to the heart of God as God is sorrowing and grieving uh, over uh, the condition of the world and the earth. Uh, the, the Hebrew there indicates that connection between the grieving of God and the comfort of Noah. And uh, so at any rate, we know he's, we know he's a man uh, who brings comfort. Uh, and then, of course, from verse 6, we also discover he is a man who has obtained grace or favor from God. And that's pretty much all we know about him until we actually get into this account of his generation. And we discover that Noah is a righteous man He's blameless in his time, and he walks with God. Okay, well that's that's a pretty remarkable statement. <laughs> you know, I just I would wish that you know when somebody writes my story several thousand years from now that they would say of me that I was a righteous man, blameless in my time, and that I walked with God. That's a remarkable thing to say about Noah. Uh, it doesn't mean that he was without sin. Uh, he wasn't sinless, and we'll discover that quite graphically when we get past the flood and we get into that story of his drunkenness and, and the sin that ensues from his drunkenness, the, the, the stumbling block that he places in the path of his children, and we'll look at, we'll look at that uh, when we get to that. So he wasn't a man without sin, but he was a man who was devoted to righteousness. He was a man who, like Jesus says, hungered after righteousness. That was his, that was his passion. And it says he was blameless in his time. And, and the idea there is, is that in the context in which Noah lived, people couldn't point a finger at him. They couldn't, they couldn't go, well, yeah, you say such and so, but you're really not like that. He was not a hypocrite. He was a guy who lived what he preached. He lived what he said. He walked the walk, he, uh, uh, walked the walk as you say. Okay? Uh, and, 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 and what's interesting to me about that is that this idea that, that, that Noah was, that as people looked on Noah's life, they found him to be blameless. It's pretty striking when you consider the world that he lived in, right? Because he lives in this really violent, really wicked world. And yet this, these violent, wicked people around whom he lives are able to look at him and know that he is blameless. Now, how do they do that? Okay, okay. But these are people who are wicked and violent and... and okay, okay. Okay, okay. And, and how does that connect with them? Why, 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 why if to them it's okay for them to be wicked and violent and they live that way all the time, what is it about them that makes them able to look at Noah and know that there's something good about Noah? Okay. 
Okay, that's exactly the answer to my question. <laughs> the issue, the issue is that what what this reveals to us is that in the heart of the most wicked of people, God has placed a conscience. That's the whole point that Paul brings out when we get to Romans, isn't it? And he says, even though they didn't have the written law, they had the law of God written in their hearts. And so, so people who who don't believe God's Word, people who don't believe the Bible, people who don't hold to our, the values that we hold to because we, uh, because we believe the Bible and, and, and want to obey the Bible, people who in theory don't hold to that, when they look at our lives, they are still able to discern. They still know that is the way to live because God has placed that in their heart. Now, obviously, as Scripture makes clear, it's possible for our consciences to become seared. But still, it strikes me uh, when, I, when I see this oftentimes in the world that the world is so able to discern blamelessness in the world itself refuses to live that way. And the way they do that is by their conscience. And that ultimately will be the thing by which God judges them. And He'll point that out to them. He'll say, well, listen, you, 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 know, you said you could live any way you wanted to live, but, but in your conscience, in your heart, you knew what was right. And when you saw someone living that way, you knew they were living that way. Noah was a guy who was blameless in his time. And one of the lessons that I pick up from that is that even though I may be surrounded by people who do not believe God, who do not trust God, who do not obey God, and who do not value trusting and obeying God, it's still important that I walk with God. Because they know when they see the real thing they know it. Okay? And so Noah was a man who was blameless in his time and it says he walked with God. We've talked already about that expression because that's the same uh, phrase that he used to identify the characteristics of Enoch when we were in chapter 5 and we're talking about how unique that passage, that phrase, or that concept is in Scripture. But it's used only in reference to Enoch and Noah and to the political purpose. And, and so Noah has this intimate relationship with God. How this relationship works, we don't know. I, I don't personally think that he was able to walk with God in the sense that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. I don't think there was anything visible or visual to him there. But he obviously had an intimate relationship with God that set him apart. Okay. Now he did this, it says, in his time. And we have already discovered from the transition verses there, verses 1 through 8, and we'll see more about it here in a minute, kind of the nature of the time that he lived in. Okay. What was it like? Uh, I, I, I don't know if I'd venture a guess. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was... Uh, was very specific. You know, there, there wasn't. There, there, there's nothing said about the, uh, to my knowledge, there's nothing said about the violence of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was, you know, the sexual immorality is the thing that stood out about Sodom and Gomorrah. The the idea that that I get as I read these descriptions in chapter uh, in chapter five and chapter six about the condition of the world uh, at Noah's time is is just this total corruption that just permeates everything in the society and everything in the culture. But, but I don't know that I would venture a guess to that, uh, to answer that question. You know. Why? 
Mike, I remember, I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 21, so I had plenty of years of living this way that um, even though I wasn't righteous and suffering by God and needed salvation, I don't think I would say that every there was a lot of it, you know, if there were interspersed with times of court good, mm-hmm. you might say. Mm-hmm. So, just by comparison, these, this whole society was way beyond anything I was experienced or what we see around us as far as I can tell. Because there's a lot of quote good people that do good things. The way this reads, and you think they're looking at that one, you know, mm-hmm. you know the, the selfishness, everybody out for themselves is kind of magnified, mm-hmm. you know, many, many times apparently. Mm-hmm. There wasn't even um, people being good to one another. Well, obviously, it's enough. We're so far beyond God's responsibility. It was it was pretty serious. Yeah, it was pretty serious. The idea there, the word there, corruption, is the idea of spoiling or to destroy. In fact, it's the very same word. He uses exact, exactly the same Hebrew word when he said, when God says, "I'm going to destroy the world or destroy the earth." It's the same word. Okay. So the idea is, is as as we read this, we can't help but draw this stark contrast between the condition of the world as as man has despoiled it or ruined it in comparison to the beauty of the creation that we saw in, in chapter 1 where God created thing and every time He created something He said He saw that it was good. He saw that it was good. He saw and then after that at the end He says He saw it was very good. So you see this this stark contrast between the beauty and the goodness of creation as God created it and then we see how man has despoiled it, man has corrupted it, man has ruined it. And uh, uh, just to illustrate the concept, the scale, of course, there's there's no comparison at all in scale uh, whatsoever, but you think about things that you have or that you possess that are important and precious to you. You know, maybe you ladies, you have something in the house that you, maybe it's a, you know, a, a beautiful tablecloth that you put out for your, you know, your best company when, when, you know, when, uh, when you have uh, uh, visitors come. And so you have this really nice, beautiful linen tablecloth and, and you spend a lot of money for it and you take very good care of it. But something happens and it's spoiled. Somebody, your clumsy husband, spills some, you know, paint on it. <laughs> no, I, I'm not confessing anything here, folks. Uh, but, but he, he, somebody spoils somehow, get, or it gets torn. Okay, and there's no way to recover it. Okay, I mean, you can't get the stain out, or it's a tear. Yeah, you could mend it, but you can't ever use it the way you would have used it before. Now you just use it for you know, families, you know, for the kids, you know, when the kids are around, you know, because it's spoiled now, it's ruined, it's corrupted, okay? Or it's that brand new car, you buy that brand new car and you drive it off a lot and about two weeks later some idiot backs out of his driveway and crunches your fender and it's just a fender bender, the fender bender, right? But the used car salesman can always tell it's been fixed. I was a used car salesman and they taught me how to find those things. You know? And they can always go, this car was in an accident. You know? 
And so even though it's a brand new car and you take it to the body shop and they put a new fender on it and they paint it and to you it looks pretty good, you know it's been spoiled. You know it's been corrupted. Well, on an infinitely greater scale, that's what's happened with the creation. This beautiful thing that God had has now been corrupted and despoiled. And, and, and it's good for nothing. Except to be destroyed and to start over again with the exception of one man and his family. Okay. And that, of course, is Noah. Support. Yeah. And that's another thing I wanted to think about today. Is here's, here's Noah, who he has absolutely no support outside of his family. And even, as we'll discover when we get past the flood, not even all his family are righteous. Okay? And we'll discover that as we get beyond the flood. But, but, but he has, outside of his family, he has absolutely no support. And what strikes me about Noah is that he is so devoted to God that he refuses to use the wickedness of the world as an excuse to kind of compromise and let things slide in his own life. And, and as Mike was pointing out, I mean, that, that's striking to me because, because, you know, sometimes we feel all alone. Maybe you're, on a, you're in a job situation where there are no believers around you, there's no Christians around you. Or, or maybe, maybe in your family there aren't any other Christians. Or, or maybe in your neighborhood and you feel all alone. But ultimately, finally, you can come to church or you can, you can go somewhere where you can find some Christians and they'll hold your hand and they'll encourage you and they'll encourage you to obey the Lord and follow the Lord. And... But, but Noah had nobody. He just had his walk with God. And he didn't use the wickedness of the world as an excuse to compromise. Yeah, yeah, 600 years finally. Yeah, yeah. He did it for a long time. And, and, and it strikes me because so oftentimes when, when we fail, when we, when we sin, when we, when we fall short, of God's standard, so oftentimes, what do we do? We say, well, you know, it was the, it was the circumstances. You know, it was the people around me. You know, my, you know if, my, if, my spouse had, if my spouse had behaved differently, I wouldn't have gotten angry and flown off the handle like I did. You know, if, if the people at work, you know, if, they, if they'd been right and righteous with me, I, you know, I wouldn't have cheated on that particular job or whatever, you know, but, but because they cheat, I, I have to cheat. You know, it's real common in, in, in my line of work, you know, the uh, idea among a lot of contractors as well, because everybody else cheats, I have to cheat too. You know, that's just, that's just, so it's my excuse. Well, Noah didn't take any excuses. He just knew how he ought to live and he lived that way. I think he probably did. Yeah, I think he did. We don't know anything about his wife, but I've always assumed that his wife was righteous. And, uh, and I... Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, yeah, I think that's true. And I think one of the reasons why people today have a sense of right, like Jim was talking about, like you're talking about now, one of the reasons they do is because of the presence of the... Uh, 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 the presence of the preservative that's in the world that God talks about in Thessalonians. Uh, the Holy Spirit acting through the church makes people aware of what's right and helps uh, helps act as this preservative in the culture uh, and in the society. But there are places in the world where that doesn't, you know, that's nearly non-existent and some of those places are really pretty ugly places and pretty violent places. But yeah, those are, those are good points, good thoughts. Well, so then God comes to Noah and he says, okay, Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. He says, I, I'm, I'm just going to destroy it all. And here's what I want you to do. And he gives to Noah these instructions on the, on, on the ark. He tells him to build an ark. He, tells him, uh, he gives him some specific instructions here and we don't know if maybe there were other uh, specifics that he gives that aren't recorded for us. But God gives to Noah some specifics to build an ark. Why does God want Noah to build an ark? Okay, in preparation for what's to come, but more than that. Okay, the answer to my question is so obvious you're missing it. Why did God want Noah to build an ark? To save somebody. Save who? To save who? Noah. Okay. I told you it's simple, folks. This is really simple here. Okay. He wanted him to build an ark to save Noah and his family. Okay. And for all the reasons you mentioned. Okay. All those are valid. Okay. But to cut it, to cut to the chase, he wanted to save Noah. God is going to bring a judgment on the earth, and He wants to save Noah. Now, God knows exactly how to do that, right? He tells Noah to build an ark. He tells him exactly how it's to be built. It's supposed to be this long, this wide, this tall, rooms on it, decks, pitch, window, the whole bit. He gives him the whole scoop of exactly how to build this ark so that he can save him. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of 2 Peter chapter 2 where God says He knows how to save the righteous from temptation. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And in the context where God says that, He's talking about two specific incidences of His judgment. Do you know what they were? In the same time, the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the flood came, when the flood was coming, God knew how to save Noah from the flood. He had him build an ark and he told him exactly how to build it. He gave him ex- explicit instructions on how to build the ark because God knew how to rescue, uh, rescue Noah. When we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's another kind of judgment. 
uh, it's going to be a judgment now, uh, a local a local judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to involve fire, involve fire and brimstone. And God sends uh, two angels to go and grab Lot by the hand and drag him out of the city with his family and get them out of the city. Why didn't he have Lot build an ark? <laughs> Especially with pitch on him. <laughs> Well, Lot was pretty reluctant to go and he drug him out. That's true. Yeah. But my point is that God knew how to rescue Lot. And he needed to rescue Lot in a different way than he rescued Noah. He knew how to rescue Noah and he rescued Noah in a different way than he rescued Lot. If, incidentally, the judgment that was coming in Genesis chapter 6 was local, he could have rescued Noah the same way he rescued Lot. And we'll get in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and, <laughs> well, and and we'll get to that. It really did require faith, and that's exactly what Hebrews tells us. But the point I'm wanting to make right now is this this concept here in in Genesis, where he says, where where he he gives Noah specific instructions on how to build the ark because he wants to save them. And then the application of that that we get in Second Peter chapter two, that God knows how to save the righteous from temptation and to preserve the unrighteous for judgment, is one of the reasons why I'm a pre-trib rapture guy. Because I believe God knows how to save the righteous from judgment. From, he says in, in Peter, he says temptation, but it's very clear he's talking about judgment because he's talking in the context about both the flood and Sodom. So, anyway, that's just a sidelight. It's an encouraging word if you think about it. Well, so then God goes down and, and we get down uh, after He's given Him instructions. He gives Him instructions on how to build the ark. He gives Him instructions on who's to enter the ark. He gives Him instructions on the animals. He gives Him instructions on the food. But there's one other thing I want to point out to you and I want to take most of the rest of our time on this point uh, because this is foundational to a lot of stuff we're going to be talking about as we go uh, through Genesis. But He says... Um, uh, in verse 17, he says, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living then he goes on and gives him some more instruction. So I want you to notice what he says to know. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. Now, we read through Genesis chapter 6 and we breeze right by that and we don't really stop to think about it. But this is the first actual use of the word beret, Hebrew word beret, B-E-R-I-T, here, uh, which is the word translated covenant in our in our Bibles, okay? It's the first occasion of the use. It's not actually the first real covenant because actually there was a covenant with a, with Adam. The covenant with Adam was that God would give to Adam paradise, the land, 
in exchange for Adam's obedience to him, i.e., not eat of the fruit of the tree. Okay? That was the first covenant. That was the Adamic covenant. There are a series of covenants that we run into as we go through the Old Testament. There are uh, about five major covenants. There are a number of covenants, but there are five major covenants. The first one is the Adamic covenant. The second one is the Noahic covenant, the one with Noah. The third is the Abrahamic covenant. Then comes the covenant that we talked about uh, when we studied uh, uh, the encounter of Horeb there at Sinai, the Sinai covenant, and then there's a covenant uh, uh, with David, uh, the Davidic covenant, and then there's the new covenant. Okay, So there's a series of several covenants uh, in redemptive history, and most of those uh, uh, have a direct significance or application to us. You cannot understand redemptive history apart from these covenants. And we are coming up on the Noahic covenant. Okay? Now, when somebody uses the word covenant, what do you think of? Promise, okay. What else? Okay. Okay. In modern terms, what word comes to your mind? An agreement or a contract, okay. All right. Okay. Those are typically the ways we think about covenant, okay? And, and all those are valid, okay? But the term covenant in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, is loaded with significance. And until we can kind of unpack that word and understand that word in its, in its depth of richness and significance, we're really not going to understand redemptive, the redemptive story the way we need to. Okay. So, so the question is, what enters the mind of Noah here when God promises to him that in, in the future, at some point in the future, he will establish his covenant with him? What goes through Noah's mind? Okay. It's not just simply that God's going to say, I'm going to make a promise. It's not just simply God saying, I'm going to enter into some kind of contract or some kind of agreement with you. It does include all of that, but it includes much more than that. The concept of covenant is rooted in the ancient culture. Okay? Now, I remember a number of weeks ago, uh, we were talking about ancient culture, and I, and I used a term to describe ancient culture, and we spent some time talking about it. Remember what that term was? We talked about the way the culture was in ancient times. Patriarchal tribal society. Okay? It's a patriarchal tribal society. Okay? Now, and, and you'll remember the things we talked about when we, when we talked about that. But... But the thing about a patriarchal tribal society is that all of a person's responsibilities and all of a person's privileges are somehow bound up with their blood relationships, who they are connected to, who's, who's patri what patriarchal family or clan or tribe are they a part of, okay? And once you got outside of that context, there was really no way to define your responsibilities and your privileges. Okay? So, so this whole idea of what family am I in, what clan am I in, what tribe am I in, this is paramount in people's minds. It defines everything about their relationships and the way they work in society and, and their responsibilities. Everything about them is determined by this patriarchal concept. Okay, this family, clan, tribe, uh, etc. concept. Okay. Uh, now, the the wonderful thing about God is that is that He doesn't 
force us to change our culture before he communicates to us. But he uses our culture the way it is to communicate to us. So God communicates to mankind in, in ancient times predicated on the culture in which man lived because that's what he understood. So, the question arises though, it's all well and good to say, well, all my responsibilities and privilege somehow are connected with who, I, you know, who I'm related to in my family or my clan or my tribe or whatever. But what happens when you encounter somebody who's not in your tribe, who has no blood connection with you, but you need to somehow reach some kind of a agreement with them so that you can define exactly how you're going to relate to one another and who's responsible to do what and who, who's going to have such and such benefits and, and what are the consequences if you don't do. Okay? So if you encounter a neighbor and your neighbor's not part of your tribe or your clan or whatever, or you, or you encounter another nation and your nation wants to figure out, okay, are we going to be at war with one another? Are we going to come to mutual defense with one another? How do we do this? Because everything depends on these blood relationships. How, how do I make sure if I enter into an agreement with this guy over here but we have no family connection, how do I know he's going to keep his word? How does he know I'm going to keep my word? What are my responsibilities to him? And what are his responsibilities to me? Well, the ancient culture developed a, a fascinating way to resolve that problem, that difficulty. And it's a thing called fictive kinship. Okay? Uh, here, I'll write it up here for you. Fictive kinship. What does that sound like? Fiction. <laughs> Fictitious. Okay? And, and that's really what it comes from. Okay? The idea is, you're not, you're not my kin. I'm not related to you. But I'm going to enter into a legal agreement that will essentially make you my kin. Now, we have that in modern terms, modern day. What do we have that's like that? Adoptions, the classic example. You know, he's not my kin, but I'm going, to, I'm going to make a legal agreement, and we have a way we do that. We go through this legal agreement, and this little girl or this little boy becomes my kin. Now, he's not my blood kin, but he's my kin. He's my fictive kinship. Okay? Now, <clears throat> so, so they had to have a way to establish a kinship. Okay? And once they established that kinship, then this person, this neighbor or this other nation or whoever it is that I have entered into this fictive kinship with is now my brother or my sister or my father or my son. And once they've entered into these fictive kinships, that's what they actually called each other. They would call each other the brother or their son or their father or whatever, okay, depending on the nature of the, of the, of the actual agreement that they had. Okay. So the idea is to establish these fictive kinships. Okay. Now, there's a way they did this. There was a particular way that they would enter into these fictive kinships. They would enter into what in Hebrew is called a berit. B-E-R-I-T. Berit. Okay? Translated in our Bibles, covenant. Okay? So they would enter into a covenant. 
Now, this whole idea of covenant, like I say, is foundational. And, and I'm just giving you just a very sketchy introduction. As we go on through Genesis, we're going to look at this whole idea of covenant a lot more deeply and we're going to look at it in, 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 in much more depth because it really is, once you begin to get a handle on what covenant really means in the Old Testament, it becomes really a thrilling concept. Okay. So, they would, they would achieve these fictive kinships through the institution of a covenant. Okay. And there was actually a specific ceremonial form that they would go through in order to establish these covenants with one another. And they had a term for that. They called it cutting a barit or cutting a covenant. Now, there's a reason why they called it cutting a covenant. We'll get into that later. I don't have time to talk about that this morning. But... But that was the term. When you entered into, when you established a covenant with somebody, you cut a covenant with them. You cut a barit with them. Okay? And once you had cut a barit with them, then you were in this fictive kinship. Okay? And depending on the nature of the covenant, uh, whether it was a parity covenant or whether it was a, a suzerain vassal covenant, depending on what kind of covenant it was, you might be brothers or you might be father-son or you might be lord-servant, but you establish this relationship through these covenants. Now, with that in mind, like I said, there's much more that we'll have to discuss on this in, in weeks ahead. But with that in mind, what strikes the mind and the heart of Noah? As he has walked with God all these years, and now God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy all flesh, but I want you to build an ark, and I will cut a barrel with you. What is Noah hearing? Well, that, yes. He's hearing God's pleasure. Yes, what else? Yeah, you're going to be my son and I'm going to be your father. And Noah, who all these 600 years has been faithful to follow God and obey God in spite of all the wickedness around him, he's continued to remain faithful. He's been a preacher of righteousness even though he's not seen a single convert. He's done this all these years and now he hears right on the threshold of the flood he hears God's promise that I am going to make you my king and I will be your king. And that is the promise of God. And it's based on that promise then that Noah sets out to go out there and start cutting the king. And that's exactly what Hebrews tells us about Noah. That by faith he built an ark. And it was by that faith, it says, Hebrews 11, chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it was by that faith, he says, that he condemned the world and received the inheritance of righteousness which comes by faith. How did he get an inheritance? What do you have to do to get an inheritance? What do you have to be to get an inheritance? You've got to be a son. And it was Noah's faith that God was going to eventually establish with him a barit. A he was going to cut a covenant with Noah. And we will actually study and learn about that time. which comes after the flood. He comes out of the ark. And after the flood, God cuts a covenant with Noah. And Noah, by faith, builds an ark in the confidence that God is going to make him his son. And through that sonship, he's going to receive the righteousness of God.
Okay? Well, next week we'll go on into chapter 7.